Welcome to Seishura. I'm Scoop Magoot. I'm Jim Jam. And we are already pretty fast and loose this morning, so I'm, <laughs> I think this is going to be a very fun, a fun episode. <laughs> um, oh my god! So we have a few interesting topics today, kind of all over the map in terms of of what types of things we're going to be talking about. But we thought we'd start out with a bit of a. Um, Kind of strange news, news, yeah, news yeah. item. I don't really think we've we've done a straight up news item in a while. Uh, yeah, it'd be cool to uh, to kind of switch that up. And and this one, I think, it, it is a chance for a little bit of salt. So we'll try to we'll try to keep it pretty pretty low sodium. But uh, Beth Gibbons um, of Portishead, the you know the uh, eminent trip hop band, they are or she is coming out with a orchestral release along with the polish national radio symphony orchestra directed releasing... by Penderecki. yeah which is so. which is really cool and they're releasing a new kind of film album thing uh the packaging looks really cool um it looks like you know nice uh nice vinyl pressing some really cool inserts and whatnot and what she's doing is henry gorecki's symphony number no. three which may sound familiar if you are familiar with you know Colin Stetson, uh, how he did uh, that that piece "Sorrow" a couple years back, uh, and this got Jimmy and I talking about how th- there's a ton of great modern classical out there, and I feel like th- what really gets the coverage is the repertoire. Now, that's something when I, I worked at a music production company uh, a few years ago, and that was something that happened a lot: is that people really fond over the performances of past um compositions of, of, of past pieces and that just didn't didn't quite um you know it didn't quite carry over to newer releases and i feel like that's unfortunate because whenever you hear about um you know critics kind of every year pick you know the classical album that matters if mm-hmm. if, if they're easy if there even is one and you know the jazz album that matters and a lot of times with classical whenever it happens it's something it either has to be someone from you know the normal quote-unquote normal world of music going over into classical or it's you know someone basically doing a well-known piece in maybe i mean i don't even know if this is going to be done in a different way you know i I, don't i I don't think it is i think it's because i mean it's the polish national radio symphony yeah you know it's it's i mean at least colin stetson you know like instrumentally try to do some something different i think you know like through his arrangements as well yeah but um here it just feels like it's just beth gibbons doing this symphony with a bunch of uh a bunch of of of, uh polish musicians which Um, i mean again there's nothing i mean maybe maybe i'm speaking on your behalf but from my vantage point i don't think we're saying anything there's nothing you know, anything necessarily wrong with her no, doing this? No, I, 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 I'm actually looking forward to listening to it. Um, yeah, same here. Yeah, because I mean, uh, Gorecki's Third Symphony is is one of the most popular pieces of like modern classical music out there. Um, which is sort of why this is such a like a sort of bittersweet for me anyway. Because like, I would love to see Beth Gibbons do like 
you know, like, I don't know, like, I think it'd be cool to see her do, like, Arvo Parts, like, uh, choral work. Yeah, for but, sure. Um, you know, or, or actually, I mean, we, we, we've talked about her before, but, uh, like, um, Hildegard von Bingen's, uh, some of her work. Yeah. You know, I think th- that'd be really cool. Um, j- just because she has such a distinct voice and, you know, to sort of see that with different things. But, I, I mean, I, I think the bigger conversation here is more like why do people keep re-recording old you know pieces of music of classical music because this is like this has been happening for like the last hundred years yeah i mean yeah when we decided to talk about this it wasn't just a a matter of uh man this is a really recent trend that's kind of interesting no like you said it's not not really recent i mean like last years that's what i'm saying is is we we didn't you know we weren't like oh this is kind of a recent weird quirky little trend this this kind of does seem like the core of classical music is, you know, can you perform, um, you know, piece X, you know, I, the, the ideal yeah. of, of classical music. And it, so it's, I, I think it, part of it has to do with um, sort of the divide between, um, you know, j- just sort of conservative, um, like music critics and, you know, conservative musicians um, who have like, you know, I, because I, I think there's there's still very much that divide between at, le- at least in classical music that there's like, you know, the, there are people who are actually doing new things with you know their music, but then there are also you know like this other half of people who basically have you know stopped at like Wagner yeah. and like and and have just sort of been regurgitating that for the last hundred years. And I mean, I, this isn't to say that there isn't anything worth it in there, but like, you know, I, I, I think part of that comes from just let, like I think they're trying to keep that tradition alive, which I'm not really sure if it's a tradition that's worth keeping alive, in a way. Yeah, because it, it's been, um, you know, a lot of these pieces have been recorded ad nauseum. Like it's it, it's really. Um, you know, really, you, you can find any number of of recordings of, of yeah. you know any Mozart piece, any Beethoven piece, yeah, exactly. and now it seems like Garecki's the next one. And there are, you know, for example, last year there was an electronic producer. Um, I don't think you liked it as much as me, but um, Anna Meredith, she collaborated with a string oh, quartet yeah. called the Scottish Ensemble, and I thought she brought something interesting to Vivaldi's uh, Four Seasons. I mean, there was, still was a core of what. You know, just what the piece is. You know, you really mm. got um, more or less what uh, you know you, the, the string arrangements that you would expect, except there were some electronic elements, and it kind of flowed in a somewhat interesting way. Um, but yeah, for the most part, a lot of these pieces. I mean, even I really did enjoy Stetson's take on it, but it still kind of was. Uh, yeah, it was. It was still m- more or less a retelling. I, yeah, I, I think that. I think that this is sort of also like a schism between sort of, you know, like the sort of upper crust, you know, so to say, of music, um, of like, you know, so-called high art, you know, and sort of everybody else, <laughs> like, yeah. like the commoners, because, you know, like there are some people like, like I just, you know, I I think with the idea of re-recording some of these pieces that some, you know, some performances will sort of be because like every performance is different, but only very slightly. 
Um, so, like, you know, I'm looking at, like, you know, Glenn Gould's uh, Goldberg variations, where he just, you know, does, he, he does interpretations of Bach's Goldberg variations mm. that, you know, it's probably his most famous recording that, because, and it's, it was kind of controversial in a way because a lot of people didn't, like, were sort of put off by the way he did what he did, you know, by, mm. by his performance. But I think for the most part, like, these performances are so you know like it's it's not like we're talking about like aleatoric music or you know um any sort of you know open composition where like there's some you know amount of interpretation to be had like um uh stockhausen's Claverstuck uh 11 i want to say is considered like one of the first aleatoric pieces ever created mm-hmm. and so like with that, or you know, with with uh, like a piece like uh, plus minus that uh, John Zorn actually takes a big uh, piece of credit from for developing his own uh, game pieces, you know, every every performance of those pieces is going to sound different because it's you know it's relying on chance to some extent. But with mm-hmm. this, it's just like oh, it, like really, the only thing that that's different sometimes is the arrangement because like you know sometimes yeah. some, sometimes some people might want to arrange it for like just a string orchestra or what have you. But it it just, I mean, it just seems a little redundant after a while. But I think at the same time, this is the only thing that a lot of these, you know, very conservative, um, you know, classical music lovers really have. So I, I like I, I feel like it's like I, I guess it's relevant to some people, but I, I personally I don't think those people are very relevant to music in general. <laughs> so I don't know. It's it's sort of how you take it. I, I still I want to listen to this just, just because I, I feel like someone like Beth Gibbons will bring I, I really think that she, she'll bring something strange to the mix. Um, if it's, you know, and it, and it could just be, you know, sort of, you know, the timbre of her voice, you know, which has always been an odd thing. I, I, I can't really call myself a huge Portishead fan. Um, they've always been a little tough for me to get into, but I, I still want to check this out. All that to say. Yeah, I, I definitely think it'll be interesting. Uh, just to kind of be kind of hit most mm-hmm. of the points I was gonna say but I, I i feel like there's not no i, I don't mean that in a bad way i think it's yeah just, it's kind of yeah. the, the issue is pretty straightforward and it, it kind of it just speaks to what different segments of the classical music world want because i mean there really is no shortage of i know it seems like um classical music is kind of an old genre an old dead genre but like that's just not that's just not true i uh, like some of it is i mean no but, some of it, but like in, yeah. in terms of i mean people could say that's you know the same thing about jazz in some ways but i mean it just for with pretty much every genre it just depends where you look exactly um, exactly and I, I do think it's unfortunate that a lot of the um the quote-unquote worthwhile classical music is you know kind of the hey have you ever have you heard of mozart here's a here's yeah. like the, the five thousandth iteration of his, of his yeah. music. It, 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 it's it's like people can't get out of like the romantic period of classical music yeah exactly like, yeah yeah, it's it, it's strange, and not not to say that romantic, you know, music is bad. Um, you know, it's it's more just like you would think that 
there would be you know I, I mean part of it has to do with like perceived um dominance in a sense that like you 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 think that like we sort of have like this unconscious thought that like this type of music is sort of like the king in mm-hmm. a way whereas it's not you know that 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 thought isn't necessarily based in fact yeah exactly um, um yeah yeah but i mean nonetheless i it doesn't mean that this isn't going to be worthwhile it could very yeah, much be, no, be d- nice definitely. but just I, I feel like no matter how many i mean i i think i own sorrow by colin stetson and i really enjoy it um but i can't imagine i would buy another iteration of i, I don't really see the, the point and buy i mean because at the, at the end of the day you're going to hear pretty much the same um general comp- composition the general melodies the general progressions and it's just to me it doesn't make sense to you know purchase this pretty much the same yeah piece over and over again that's sort of why i'm hesitant to buy some of john zorn's classical uh works just because uh there are certain albums that have certain re-recordings of other piece of the like the same pieces on them like mm-hmm. for example uh cartoon snm is more of like a compilation that has you know so it has like one of those his most famous piano pieces called uh carney on it mm-hmm. But it also has like Memento Mori, which also shows up on the string quartets. Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah. it has like the Dead Man, which I think also shows up on the string quartets. And uh, you know, and then you look to like an album like Angelus Novus that has also Carney on it. You know, and but it's weird because that recording people consider it to be like the definitive one because uh, mm-hmm. I think it's Stephen Drury from um, the New England Conservatory music who's doing uh the performance on that but then you also have like other you have like the, he has like a live album that is like a like a full symphony mm-hmm. doing a lot of these string quartets um so it's like you know I, i've always been a little like i i want to buy it but i'm sort of taking my time in a way it it, it almost <laughs> feels like it means more to the artist than it, than it would probably mean to most listeners like you know like i, I want to I mean, not necessarily talking about zorn but talking about um like I, i'm sure beth gibbons is like you know i want to tackle symphony number three yeah like you know um, she, this is a song that she really enjoys yeah and wants to tell which there's nothing wrong with that but I, you know i would say that i would also say though that i think there are listeners out there who are much more you know detailed uh listeners than we are when, when it comes to this music Sure. That, like, you know, they, you know, I'm assuming that the, these are the type of people who wear smoking jackets and, you know, like, like you know, have the score open while they're listening to this thing. And yeah. so they can, they can notice all these different details and, like, you know, to each their own. I'm, I'm not going to say that, that this person, this theoretical There's a right or a wrong way to. Yeah, I, there, isn't a, there isn't a wrong way to listen to music. Um, but I would also say that, like, that person i think represents a very very small minority yeah uh, these days. I, I think that's kind of what i was getting is that the most people who would be interested in um in listening to or, or who like portishead or, or or what have you I, yeah. I i think that this might might not speak to them in quite the same way um yeah but but, but then again i mean beth gibbons has a way of doing things that i think you know like she i think she's part of the reason that portishead is so popular i, I don't think that they would be anywhere without her to a degree yeah and i definitely would say that uh stetson covering garecki frankly was not 
it wasn't overly surprising. Um, you know, it was like, okay, I could, I could see him wanting to do that. Whereas I yeah. will say that, um, uh, hearing that, you know, Beth Gibbons from Portishead was going to cover Grecky. I'm like, all right, that's a little, that's a little interesting. Like, that's, yeah, that's I, not necessarily something I expected. I, I'm, I'm sort of remembering back when Sorrow came out that I, I know, like, the community that we're a part of was, was really, like, blowing up about it. That they were, like, really into it because, you know, we, like, the heavy blog crowd really likes Colin Stetson. Mm-hmm. That's what it seems. And, um, yeah. like, you know, they, they, they were really fawning over this thing. Whereas, uh, you know, like he, Fantano didn't even review it. Like he he did a why know you, uh, yeah, what why you know review for it, mm-hmm. a- and in that he was just like, this is this is basically just the same thing <laughs> that it's always been. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you had a little bit more, you know, the, the rumbles of uh, sets and saxophones and whatnot. And you had, a, like, had some a, a little bit more heavier. But, like, like, not, you know, not, I mean, if you're being totally objective, I mean, I, I'm a big Stetson fan, but, like, it really wasn't, like, I can't imagine I would be totally surprised by the, the dip, you know, the, yeah. or rather the lack of difference between that and, like, Well, more. like, I, I, I think what made the Stetson version so popular is because like he was like oh yeah well i'm taking influences from black metal and all this stuff and like which you, you can, know in re-listening over the years you can vaguely hear that yeah i mean i can kind of see where he was going from but like i would never if someone said it I'd be like oh yeah i can hear that it but just I would seems never... like such a buzzword now like, yeah. like like when we were reviewing um kelly moran's ultraviolet last year mm-hmm. uh there's she talked about you know, uh, she's been quoted as saying that she was influenced by black metal while recording this thing and like writing it. And I'm like, I, I don't hear that anywhere. <laughs> yeah, you listen to it, you're like, yeah, sure. Yeah, Absolutely. like I mean, I, you know, if if that influences her, like you know, good for her. But I I, I feel like it's 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 sort of buzzy now. Like it it sort of has like this, uh, you know, like this energy behind it. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that just like oh, you know. I'm hip. I'm cool. Like, you um, know, I listen to black metal. Yeah, exactly. I listen to Def Heaven, which is totally black metal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, De- Def Heaven doesn't even think that they're black metal. But that's Yeah, I mean, I mean they have they have some elements, but they, they yeah. over the over the years um it's really I mean, they've kind of dropped the guys. Uh, I I haven't really been a big fan of those for the last couple albums, but you know, I I do generally enjoy the fact that more people are getting into black metal i think death heaven has a little bit to do with that oh yeah um, definitely. but, but at, the, at the same time i think what people think like blackened or like a black metal influence is is sometimes a little generous in their yeah <laughs> in their favor and it's again it's, it's cool and i'm like i'm not trying to sound pretentious or anything yeah but it, it just it, it is kind of um it, it just it means more than that like you you wouldn't say that with it's it's kind of like when things are um you know things have some strings or orchestral like oh like it's you know it's it's classical influenced or you know you know albums have some horns like oh it's jazz influenced it's like yeah not necessarily or not yeah you know it's it's sort of like why we talked about this before with uh unpopular opinions that like sort of experimental seems to be like a buzzword like a tag if you will that that's been tossed around a lot lately absolutely Um, yeah all right so i i think i think we've beaten this horse to death 
Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting how this started. I was, oh, let's just do a quick news piece, and here, yeah. here we are. Well, no, it's it's yeah. an interesting conversation. It's something that I've always wondered about with classical music, yeah. because, and I, I think that, you know, that I, and I, this will be my last piece on it, that, that part of, because I, I think we sort of view in, like, the, like, sort of the general culture, like, like we, I, I think we consider classical music as, as a society to be somewhat irrelevant culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of the reason is is because of some of stuff like this that you know if you're going to keep recording the same stuff over and over again, of course you're going to be irrelevant. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's kind of that that seems like something that's pretty intuitive, um, but apparently not so much. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day. Definitely, am interested in giving yeah, this a listen. Definitely, um, I, I I don't think this would be something that we'd review, but um, you know, but maybe it'd be something that we would talk about, you know, give a couple minutes to when it comes out. Yeah. Um, I also want to point out too that I I found uh, a version of the article on Rolling Stone, and the uh, the the first two uh, you know, hot pieces that are on the sidebar are both like how how does trump keep so orange or something like that which is like oh, all right oh. i don't know i don't know why why there's two versions of that <laughs> that take up the top two spots but okay <laughs> all right um, well that's i mean that, that that's kind of rolling stone in a nutshell at this point oh yeah but. no definitely definitely um so this next thing i i i feel like i should probably uh talk about this because I was the one who sort of picked this out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I talked a little bit last week about um, Arcana, which is a series of uh, uh, musical essays by uh, they're edited by John Zorn, put out by Zadig Records. Um, and I just finished the first volume of it uh, just a couple weeks ago. And I found the preface that Zorn wrote to be very interesting um, and very provocative and sort of calling out critics in, in a way. Yeah, he, he really didn't he really didn't hold back. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I when I first read this, I really thought that this was like we need to talk about this. Because I, I it's a really interesting piece that it, you know and it's only two pages too and he gets to the heart of a lot of of stuff, but but I'm not sure how completely right or like you know like i feel like he might be a little biased to to a certain extent um as we all are but like i'm just gonna read like the first page or so uh just because i i feel like there's a lot of it that's worth extrapolating um i think it would be just helpful just to read it all you know first um so rock jazz punk dada beat these words and their longer cousins, the ism family, surrealism, postmodernism, abstract expressionism, minimalism, are used to commodify and commercialize an artist's complex personal vision. This terminology is not about understanding. It never has been. It's about money. Once a group of artists, writers, or musicians has been packaged together under such a banner, it is not only easier for work to be marketed, it also becomes easier for the audience to buy it and for the critic to respond with prepackaged opinions. 
the audience is deprived of its right to the pleasure of creating its own interpretation, and the critic no longer has to think about what is really happening or go any deeper than the monochromatic surface of the label itself, thus avoiding any encounter with the real aesthetic criteria that make any individual artist's work possible. I, I think that pretty much right there, uh, which is just the first paragraph, I, I think that's the that's a huge crux. Like I think that's the crux of the of his argument right there. Um, and there's a lot to unpack just in that paragraph. <laughs> yeah, there there really is. Yeah, I I think the first thing is that he, you know, I I'm gonna quote this part that um, you know that the critic responds, you know that that the critic uses sort of these genre tags as like a prepackaged opinion and i think that you know i i think zorn has his reasons for bringing this up and putting it in this way but i think he's sort of missing the viewpoint of the critic um and believe me i'm i'm not always i'm not very pro critic um but he like i i think we forget that this has this is almost has more to do with language than it does with art in a sense yeah yep because it's like you're basically butting your head against you know the premise that language is not perfect that you know its job is to communicate and you know it does not do that perfectly because it it can't it it just it doesn't have that you know construction because it fails to you know but like I think, like anything else, it fails to look at anything objectively, or at least uh, to a certain extent. Like it, it has this strange way of being both objective and subjective at the same time, and it's very much privy to whoever's you know responding to it and hearing it. Um, so like you know, like the reason we use genre tags, you know, it, we, we, I think we've had this discussion before, right? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, genre tags are definitely a double-edged sword, but yeah. uh, I think I think it's unfair to write them off entirely because they do have a pretty practical, frankly, kind of a boring purpose. Um, yeah, but like they they do serve a necessary evil if you want to you know go about yeah, it that way. Definitely, but but I I think you know to I think sort of flip sides for a second and look at sort of the rest of his argument. Um, there's I, I I I think we rely on genre tags a lot. And possibly a little too much that we end up saying, oh, you know, like this is like, oh, this is a variation on like the death metal formula or, you know, what have you, you know, when I think there's more, there might be more going on in a piece that might be beyond genre tags that, you know, um, like, for example, like, um, you know, you could be like, I was listening to, um, Oh yeah, I was listening to Sonny Rollins' uh, Nukes Time uh, over the week, just trying to get some, uh, you know, some some lesser known jazz albums to me uh, listen to, and you know, people you know like really like that album. And I was looking at reviews for it, and they're all really cool, but they never mentioned Philly Joe Jones's drumming, which is just if you've ever listened to this album, it's a bizarre. It's very very bizarre when it comes to. Philly Joe, Philly Joe Jones performance on this thing. It's it, like it's very bombastic in a way that most jazz drumming isn't. And I, uh, I just find it weird that nobody's really talked about that from what I could find. 
Mm. And I think that's part of it is that like I think people people are like, oh, this is Sonny Rollins from like you know I I, I want to say this was like a '50s album for him, and like so they're like, oh, okay, so it was hard bop, you know, just and sort of like shuffle it along. When I you know there's so much more that you can take out of you know this you know if you just simply not eliminate a genre tag but like you know put less emphasis on it Uh i I think that's something that is worth noting because i i think you know we do this too in in our reviews um a lot that like you know like i my mind turns to like pig destroyer like the last pig destroyer album that we reviewed yeah like it we we sort of went like you know like this is good grindcore but like it's not great and like we really failed in in a sense to extrapolate what that really means to us um and and i'm not saying that 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 our review was was bad because i actually like that review a lot i think we got to the heart of some other arguments within that uh but like i I think that there's something like there's something missing here that i really might always be missing yeah, but I, I do, I get where you're coming from. I, I yeah. think that there is value in, um, like, like for example, that there's a, a band called uh, Convulsing. They were, people were calling them dissonant death metal. And they said, you know, n- nothing on this album was meant to be dissonant death metal. And they kind of were bucking that term. But if mm. you've listened to death metal for the last several years, it kind of has become its own genre, you know, the, mm. you know, you know, death metal that's very kind of the gore gutsian, chaotic, you know, a lot of you know dissonance and whatnot. So I think it, it, in many ways, um, it is a quick way, and there's definitely ways. I agree. We maybe should have extrapolated a little bit more on why, um, you know, Piggy Story's last album didn't really go towards the ideal, and, and in some cases, in my writing, it's uh, it's it's more of a way just to to talk about a sound in, in yeah. a very succinct way. And, but I totally get it must be really frustrating, especially for artists like, I mean, just to go back to Def Heaven, I don't think Def Heaven really fits any particular box. And I don't mean that as in like they're like this super experimental band, but they really they do pull from a bunch of different genres, whether or not you like them or not. That's just the thing they do. Yeah. Um, so it must be frustrating, especially for someone like Zorn, which is I can understand where his kind of the animosity he has is coming from because he really is pretty incredibly difficult to classify on many of his pieces so for people to try or you know in some cases just kind of ignore him because it's um difficult to to discuss uh, his music although i will say i think another thing against him and why you know he's not covered more is just the sheer volume of what he releases yeah Um, it's really i mean well marketing too i would sure and it, I mean, it is a business. I mean, you can't, like, for example, uh, King Gizzard, um, you yeah. know, when they had that, that five album year, uh, you know, the coverage of them kind of tapered off towards the end because, you know, it got, it got kind of boring, you know, it, it, yeah. that's, that's one of the reasons artists don't release that, or most artists don't release that many albums is because, you know, they're they're not going to be able to dedicate that much attention to you. And frankly, I mean, I lost, I mean, I really loved, you know, the, the first few albums they released. And then after that, I kind of lost interest. Cause I was like, you know what? I'm kind of, 
burned out. Kind of done. So yeah, I, 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 I feel like he just bring both in quality and quantity. He just brings not only a lot to the table, but just, you know, a very unique um, amalgamation of styles and, and musical yeah. theories to the table. And it's just, it's not something that the average critic would be able to talk about in the span because, you know, we made the comment about like, you know, he's got an occasional review in like a trade publication or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, because, because of the turnaround, they have to turn around. Yeah. Cause I mean, what a music theorist or, a, you know, and a music critic try to do critic try to do, I think are completely different it is, you know, one is trying to talk about the deeper meaning of an album. The other is trying to say, you know, is this something worthwhile? Is it, you know, something that's worth enjoyment? And I feel yeah. like because, because of the modern musical landscape, that utility has kind of faded a little bit um, because you know, people don't really need other people to tell them, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. because they can easily look it up themselves. I, I, exactly. So, I, but also, I think the important thing is this: this came out what, like, he wrote this twenty years ago at this point. Yeah, it's it's up there. So, so it's kind of it's from a different time, but it's still it's interesting how many of his criticisms do kind of hold up today, or they they at least yeah. are applicable today. I, so. I think so. To go back to something you brought up, that uh, dissonant death metal, I, I think that like if we were gonna sort of plug that into the equation that Zorn is sort of providing us here, I think the idea would be instead instead of saying, "Oh, this is dissonant death metal," I think this is more to like realize, hey, you know, like I think a lot of death metal uses like a tritone, you know, and uses like a lot of blues, and uh, mm-hmm. you know to sort of get its riffs across and to sort of make transitions between riffs. Whereas this new line of dissonant, you know, quote unquote dissonant death metal uses more chromatic changes. I think mm-hmm. it's I think it's more of like that. I think that if you know if you sort of used it in those terms, I think it might be a little different. Because you're actually talking about what the artist is doing as opposed to sort of generalizing. Um like like example, like I, uh, I, I just started my last class of graduate school on Thursday, and we read this piece by uh, Rick Moody, who's a uh, New York writer. He's like pretty experimental, and um, the piece reminded me a lot of like a Steve Reich, like minimalist piece, like um, uh, l- l- like one of those early tape phasing things that he did back in the day, uh, because it just it would just use this simple phrase of. Um, boys enter the house but he would do variations on that and repeat it and sort of time would sort of pass with these variations as it went on but at the same time you know and my my instructor even noted this too he's like i I would not call rick moody a minimalist i'm like like me either but you know you can't deny that this thing has tendencies that sort of gravitate towards something that steve reich would have done back in the 70s you know, mm-hmm. um, it's it's something it, it's like a little like that in that, you know, we're talking about something that, you know, is so infinitely complex that, you know, you can only go so deep to just like, you know, like, like it's it's more about like, you know, <laughs> like you said, with trade publications, like, you know, it, like how much time do you want to take really to talk about this? And like I, you know, like and like you said, the theorist has, you know, has much more time because you know they're coming up with like a monograph or you know they're publishing an article that can be you know a hundred pages sometimes, 
whereas you know a review has to be like you know usually under a thousand words so yeah i I think it is really trying to accomplish different things you you know at this point what music criticism is is you know here's something you may not have heard of that's worth checking out and obviously you don't want to just put a a list of album names on a page and call that a review you you know you want to maybe talk a little bit more about it um just to give people a general sense um but yeah i mean frankly i i think what with music theorists do when they break down different pieces they're really digging into a concept on maybe an album or what you know a an artist does um and they're able to go more in depth where when you know critics trying to basically um maybe even approach it from a cultural angle i think a song we haven't brought up yet is that you know it's talking about how does this play into the general movement of the genre Mm. you know versus you know what is it actually doing musically um and I, i think that also is another thing that might play against underground music, you know, like Zorn or other people, is that um, it's it's something that just doesn't have as broad appeal. And I, I don't mean, I mean it, yeah. It, 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 it's about prerogative, too. And I think a lot of these underground bands, I think Zorn especially, is someone who's never given much of a shit about his audience. Yeah. You know, like, because for him, you know, music is about him. It, it's about his expression. And, you know, uh, people can sort of do with it what they want. Like he says in this first paragraph, the audience here is deprived of its right to the pleasure of creating its own interpretation. You know, and that's a a quote that has really stayed with me because this is something he's brought up before, sort of that idea of, um, you know, free interpretation of art. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's... I think that's something that we haven't really touched yet in this conversation that like I you know I, I think sometimes critics can sort of pigeonhole you know um, a certain work you know into a certain way and sort of you know again like sort of deprive that idea of someone being able to interpret something differently like like example like um, I, I are you ever listen to Curtis Mayfield Yes. Yeah. So I've been listening to um, the track uh, "Get On Up" or "Move On Up." I'm sorry, um, like all week because it's it's just such an uplifting song for me, and I, I just I, I adore it. Like I would probably consider, like I was honestly thinking about doing album of the week and just making it song of the week just so I could talk about "Move On Up" because <laughs> um, I just love it that much. But Critics, I think, could look at that and be like, oh, this is a song, you know, about, like, black power, about, like, you know, sort of rising up and, you know, sort of dealing with racial tensions in a different way. And, you know, and, like, I think that interpretation is valid. But at the same time, if somebody read that, they could also, you know, be like, oh, so that doesn't apply to me. Like, you know, and I mean, look, I mean, I'm a a white guy. (laughs) Like, you know, it's so, like, you know, but but at the same time, I, I'm getting a lot of meaning from this song. You know, personally, that it's you know it's something that tells me you know hey, you know you just need to keep trying and fighting for what you believe, and you know, like eventually you'll you'll break through it, mm-hmm. and like so like like the context like is completely different, but it's still the same song. Mm-hmm. You know, I and so I th- I think it's that type of thing that like you know um like sort of let like. Like, like, not, not, not to sort of beat this horse again, but like, you know, uh, to pimp a butterfly. Like, I think people 
are really fawn over you know how philosophical it is and like how like you know how is this huge statement on on like modern african-american culture and things like that and like i'm not going to deny that but like i i've i've tried to listen to that album so many times now and i really have not been able to extrapolate that nor enjoy the music that's going on mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just like you know i it's again we're, we're what, what what zorn is sort of you know he he's really just butting his head it feels like a, a, against the fact that you know these you know reviews and these criticisms are you know have sort of a limit to you know their their efficacy i guess is is probably the best way to put this yeah no i, yeah. I think that's totally fair yeah um yeah I, I think, you know, he goes on more in in this thing to, like, really, this preface is more to explain the meaning behind the Arcana series, which is more just to sort of let musicians talk about their work in their own words, or talk about other people's work in their own words. And th- there are some really great articles, uh, some, some essays in it. Like, there's one about, um, uh, you know, sort of how to teach free improvisation, or whether that's even a possible thing to do. Uh, which was a very very interesting article, um, you know. They have a lot of different. They have stuff on like plunder phonics, and there's a great essay on Coltrane's work. Uh, you know, there's some really great stuff there, and I think that you know, part of the reason he has this is is to sort of bring these thoughts to life to sort of be, because like the the subtitle of this of this collection is musicians on music, uh-huh. you know as opposed to like cultural theorists on music or you know things like that yeah like it's it's really about people who care about you know the music that like that they're playing you know and they want to express that through more than their music yeah absolutely yeah yeah i i totally get what you're coming from but but i think it was it was nonetheless it's interesting to um at least to me what stuck most was how much this carries over how you know some of the issues um, have stayed the same, if not potentially gotten worse. I mean, mm. I think music criticism, and at the very least, what a lot of mod- modern publications do. I mean, you know, look at some, a place like Consequence of Sound, where basically their reviews have just become, you know, slightly fancier bullet points. Like yeah. they have, like they have, you know, like pretty much TLDR sections. Like it's not even a full fledged review. They say, you know, basically the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, you know, verdict. Like it's not even like a fully fledged out, yeah. And I, I I think that I totally get where he's coming from in that in in that regard. And it's kind of funny how some of the points he's making have kind of persisted in that way. Yeah, and, and like you know, as much as you know, like I, I think I've tried to make this clear that I I'm sort of I feel a little bit ambivalent to this argument as a whole because like I can see sort of both sides of it. And I, I know that as a writer, if I start somebody to review my stuff and be like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, you know, th- th- this, this guy is doing like a minimalist piece in the style of Cormac McCarthy or, you know, something like that. I'd be like, fuck that. Like, I'm like, <laughs> like, I, I, that, that's that's not even close to what I'm trying to do. And let like, you know, to, to, to pigeonhole that is just it, it's it's frustrating. It's, and especially, you know, when you're an artist like Zorn, it's 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 incredibly frustrating because. Your your stuff is just indescribable to a certain extent, mm-hmm. like because it's just like, like 
how do you how do you describe like an everything but the kitchen sink mentality like like <laughs> there's just no way to go about that succinctly. Yeah. So you know it it. it I, I get what he's trying to say, but it doesn't mean I 100% agree. Sure, yeah. Or disagree. So, uh, okay. A- any last words here? No, I think, uh, you know, it's really kind of more of a launching pad to talk about some different things, and I was yeah. glad we were able to do so. Yeah, it's, it's definitely... It, I would suggest anybody who's interested in Arcana, like, sort of like the sound of it, I, I would definitely recommend it. It's... Uh, some articles are a little abstract because some of them are just basically just like notes for musicians notebooks um but at the same time there are some really interesting in-depth ones like there are some that talk about um like uh sort of developing the sonic possibilities of like a cello which i thought was really like it seems like such a strange like esoteric thing to talk about but it was incredibly interesting um so definitely check that out. You can buy it on Zadok.com or you can buy it uh, via Amazon. Really anywhere except for like a regular bookstore. <laughs> so, yeah, well, sure. Uh, yeah. So our next thing, um, we're introducing like a little new segment uh, that we're sort of just calling, you know, like music exploration. So in the past, we have tried to do like starter kits and like crash courses and you know, things like that, trying to introduce people to a certain genre uh when you know i i think not only have like those type of lists you know are sort of they're sort of redundant at this point because you can really look online and find like you know like just a hundred of them and you could just go to rate your music and do that too um but i think the people that i i would i would hope listen to this podcast um, are interested are sort of not necessarily neophytes to a lot of these genres that they're sort of you know um, they've explored more of what's going on here you know and they sort of they sort of dive deeper um, so I thought it would be an interesting idea to you know um, instead of having these starter kits these crash courses all of that crap um, Instead, we talk. We, we sort of pick a genre, and you know, Scott and I separately sort of dive into our own little, uh, like, just sort of explore some stuff that we haven't really explored before in the genre, and sort of come back and talk about our findings here. Uh, you know, it, it, this isn't meant to be like you know, very cut and like you know, it's, it's not cut and dry. It's sort of you know, abstract. Sort of you know, like we'll we'll take it as it comes kind of free um you know but th- this week uh coincidentally we did uh we thought we'd do free jazz because uh we talked about last week uh, about albert ayler a little bit because uh you had bought an ayler album i had mentioned that i really hadn't listened to a lot of his stuff and uh so you know it, do, do you want me to go first or do you want to uh get into this a little bit yeah go ahead all right yeah. so like, like I said, I, I listened to primarily uh, a lot of Albert Ayler, but I also had I also included some stuff that you know by, by some musicians that I really haven't given the time of day, especially Cecil Taylor. Uh, that like I feel like I got into him with uh, unit structures like years ago, and I remember I, I bought you a copy of unit structures, mm-hmm. um, and 
that album sort of I, I sort of grew away from it like I didn't really like it that much um, I ended up really liking his album Conquistador but still I felt like I never really explored his discography much and I think you know um, after his passing and sort of the more you look into music criticism related to free jazz and free improvisation he's such a major force to be reckoned with in it um, and just such an idiosyncratic artist that I, I, I think that you know I, I he really deserves more attention or at least from me and so I, I tried to go through you know some of his discography and really get to more of it and I, I, I really I consider myself a really big fan now um, I in the past I was sort of a little turned off by you know improvised piano because sometimes it just it just sounds like you're just punching the keys uh-huh. but uh, you know really sitting down and listening to like uh, for example like the world of Cecil Taylor or his solo album which is just called Solo there's, there's really a lot of complexity that he's doing in this thing it, like that it, you know at first I think it could sound very chaotic and sort of um, I don't know not necessarily dumb but like you know sort of unintelligent to a certain degree uh, but really sitting down and listening to it really opens it up. And, you know, you, you sort of, it's weird how his, his music sort of just like blooms like a flower. Mm-hmm. It's very strange. Um, yeah, but then um, I would also listen to uh, a Don Cherry Symphony for Improvisers, which I'm surprised I haven't listened to that before. No, that's a great one. Yeah, I know. It's really, it's a great album. Uh, I, I really, really, there wasn't a single album that I listened to in this thing that I was like, like this is bad like i really i enjoyed like every single album but um pro- but but definitely the the biggest focus of this listen for me was albert ayler um but mostly because i think i'd only listened to spiritual unity beforehand and maybe part of uh the live in greenwich village album uh and so you know listening to these things again i, I was really blown away just, just by um ayler's expressiveness mm-hmm. on the saxophone despite you know like there's sort of a simplicity to what he's doing you know especially like when he plays ghosts that like you know like that melody is very it's very catchy and it's very very simple but at the same time he's able to get a lot out of it and like i really like that i think that's a really cool um sort of thing that like he's you know like the, have you ever heard that quote that Ayler said it was like um coltrane Coltrane was the yeah father, yeah yeah Coltrane was the father Pharaoh was the son, and I'm the Holy Ghost. Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, like it makes a little more sense, you know. Now, you know, when listening to this, because like you can sort of see Coltrane is sort of at this point that like you know he sort of reached the end of what composition can do for him, so he's trying to branch out into improvisation more, and then you have Sanders who's sort of already there in that way having worked with like Sun Ra for so long and things like that but then you have Ayler who's just like even beyond that to the point that like he sort of developed his own language using his saxophone mm-hmm. it, it just his 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 performances sound so different from any other free jazz saxophones that I've, I've ever heard um Though I will say, and I'm surprised nobody else has really brought this up, but 
Have you ever noticed that he sounds a little, a little bit like Bratzman? Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, like or at least when it comes to the timbre of of his playing, he has a very like it, it's very expressive and rough, which is such a Bratzman thing. And the weird thing is that um, I think he was doing stuff before Bratzman. Yeah, you know, I think so. so. It, it I I sort of wonder because like I was trying to do some research and look into Bratzman's influences, and I didn't really see Ayler anywhere. Really, like the only thing I really saw that had any effect on me was um. I want to say that he saw Sidney Bechet in concert. It could have been either Sidney Bechet or Big Spiderbeck. I, I, one of those two, um, and was really influenced by him. But that that's it. And the, I mean, those guys are are pretty traditional jazz players. Mm-hmm. So it's just really strange to see that, like that connection because it, you know it's it's not often you hear that that type of timbre coming out of a saxophone that often. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with my listens to Ayler, uh, I also include a new grass, uh, which we've, we've talked about that you, you are not a big fan of. Um, and I, I actually really like it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I'm not going to say like, Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's as good as spiritual unity or like love cry, but like it was fun. Like, it was it was just enjoyable and like the album cover is just I, I think the album cover is so hilarious. Yeah, that's fun. like I I just I love it and you know but you were like oh this sounds like cheesy eighties music and I'm like like what is Scott smoking like because <laughs> like to me the, this literally sounds like Albert Ayler soloing over like a schoolhouse rock video. Yeah, that, that, that's what I'm saying. It yeah. sounds like yeah, that's exactly what I was saying. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm just like, like I'm like, oh man, like, like I'm just picturing like I'm, I'm, I'm hoping like the, the, the bill, it's like you know, from the song shows yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> like it, it was, you know, and I'm not gonna say that like this was, you know, standout, amazing, like, but it, it was, I actually enjoyed it a lot and much more than I thought, and uh, I think part of the reason it's in this format is is because of pressures from um uh his from impulse um because i i guess they were trying to like i was reading sort of uh on like wikipedia and things like that that they were sort of trying to push him more towards composition as opposed to improvisation um you know which is kind of sad you know because i i mean Really, that, that's where Ayler is just amazing, is, is just in his improvisations. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I still think he makes the best out of something that could easily be, like... Like, y- y- you gotta admit, this thing could be a lot worse. Like, th- this thing could be really, really bad. If But, like, I, I, I think he managed to pull it together and make it, you know, somewhat listenable. But maybe I'm the only person who thinks that. <laughs> I, I think for me it was just a lot of what I expected versus what I got. Yeah, um, I, and... I, I totally understand that. Like, see, I, I I I came into it thinking like, oh yeah, this is this is gonna be like probably bad, and like like I I was sort of hoping for like, uh, Jan Hammer's like you know um I I think he did the Miami Vice soundtrack, uh which if you don't know, Jan Hammer's uh he's part of the Mahavishnu Orchestra he's a keyboardist um like I, I was hoping for that sort of like 80s synth cheese you know but uh 
I still like this. This was just it was just it was just enjoyable. So mm-hmm. and I would still say that you know even despite like sort of like that Motown schoolhouse rock type of sound, he still manages to put out some really interesting like work on his saxophone. Mm-hmm. Uh, to a point that I would say that it was actually more like more widely ranged when it came to his improvisations anyway than any other of the previous Ayler albums I listened to. Um, like it felt like he had developed his language a little more. And I, I thought that was just really cool. So, you know, I, I'm really glad that I sort of got, you know, we, we sort of did this and, you know, I sort of got to check out this guy because, you know, I, I'm, it, it sucks that I've been sitting on, sitting on like listening to this for so long. So, yeah, I mean, he's I, for some reason he just yeah hasn't really been thrown in the mix as much as like a Coltrane or or even Pharrell Sanders. I think it's because he had a relatively brief yeah. career, and also, um, actually, that might be it. I can't well, really think I, of any other reason I, why I, he I, wouldn't be as. I, th- yeah. I think the end. I think like an album like Newgrass and like sort of the ending of his career. You know, I think that could put a lot like sort of a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths yeah um like same thing sort of like um and i i don't know this entirely so you have to correct me if i'm wrong but later pharaoh sanders stuff i've heard is not the greatest yeah unfortunately (laughs) i have one of i mean i gotten i think i've kind of gotten to a phase where it seems like every other Pharaoh Sanders album I buy is fantastic, and then <laughs> the other ones are like really not great. I forget the name of the one of the albums I bought. Where like as soon as I put it in, I was like, "Wow, this is not good." Thembi? No, no, I actually really I think that one uh, was on the the upswing, and then okay. there's oh, let me try to find it. Yeah, um, but so um, if if you can if you can type and talk at the same time, but what were you? Uh sort of getting into this week if anything so i i tried to do kind of a, a nice juxtaposition where i looked for some you know brand new free jazz albums and then kind of listened to some older ones uh, i think unsurprisingly if you follow the the podcast uh one of my older picks was um the ailer album i i talked about you know i, I felt like it was kind of logical we're talking about free jazz and i just bought a free jazz album so i yeah. listened to it more and i really I really do like the uh, "Save Our Children" by Pharaoh Sanders. Uh, it's it's basically like like new age world music that your <laughs> you know hip hippie aunt might listen to. And yeah, it's not great. No, well, no, no, no. I, I our hippie aunt would, would listen to Enya Scott. So that's true. <laughs> um, she wouldn't yeah. know who Pharaoh Sanders is. <laughs> <laughs> well. Hopefully, yeah. I'd be surprised. I'll ask. My yeah, no, it's it's, it's true. I'm 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 being very stereotypical here. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the the album he released with uh, um, and now I'm blanking on the name. God damn it, Don Cherry. Yes, but like, what was what was the name? It was it was the one where it was a uh, prophecy. Um, no, it was the. See, this is what messes me up. Is like I was talking last week. Is they reissued it. Even though it's like the same track listing, oh, oh vib- vibrations. Okay. Um, yeah. and I liked how it kind of reminded me of um, older Ornette Coleman, uh, kind of how it was pretty free but still very rooted. You know, several of the songs on 
vibrations still felt like jazz songs that you know just had some really spirited performances mm. um and i thought that was interesting um it's it's not my favorite iteration of, of free jazz i feel like i don't quite get um like i don't quite get the the kind of hallmark jazz and i don't quite get the total unbridledness of free jazz but i still really enjoyed um the album for for what it was and i it was it was a fun interesting listen uh that's why you know within like ornette coleman's discovery for example i really prefer free jazz because it truly does you know dive into that um and of course you know I, i generally like what he does it's just not um, it kind of straddles the line in a way that isn't always doesn't always gel with me. Like I can always always you know I can almost always put on a free jazz album or almost always put on a you know like a bop album and enjoy it. But like that kind of sweet spot doesn't mm. always not always in the mood for it. Um, and then it's funny we brought up Sanders because one of the other uh, I kind of like we've been talking about have had a bad taste in my mouth because of Sanders because like the last few albums I bought from him just really haven't hit the mark. Um, including uh, his debut, where basically it was him and then like a standard quintet setup, and it just did not vibe well. Like mm. they, bas- they they basically were doing, I think it is just called like like Pharaoh Sanders, like Pharaoh Sanders quintet or quartet, um, and it just very much feels like he's on like a totally another level, but. The rest of his quartet is just trying to play like normal, you know, jazz. <laughs> so basically, like Coltrane on any album. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. It's the Pharaoh Sanders that came out in '65, and it's just it it none of the performers match what he's doing. And I think that was one of the more recent ones I bought, and I was like, I just don't really get this. So I tried to go back and listen to one of my favorite Sanders album, uh, Black Unity, and yeah. man, like I I remembered exactly why I love Sanders. Like there's just so much kinetic energy. There's so much. Um, you know, spirituality and power within it. Um, it just, it, it was, it was incredible to, to go back and realize, you know, why he's such a great player. He definitely faltered a little bit, I think, in the later part of his career. Um, and he's still going. It was still going, absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, the, the ultimate letdown was, oh Lord, let me do no wrong. It was like, it was on sale, you know, vinyl for like $8 at a local record store. And like half of it are basically like easy listening tracks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it's like, okay, no thank you. But I think what, what I love about him and, um, you know, what he brought to the table is just that there's so much melody and power, but also you still have that kind of unbridled energy and, and the free jazz um, components to it. You know, he's definitely been one of my favorite players for that reason, which is one of the reasons I've re-listened to Ohm um by pharaoh oh. sanders and john coltrane yeah and that is a f- I, i'm really shocked that that's not more talked about than it is because I, I so i i think the reason for that is because it's part of like that posthumous coltrane yeah like release that like deluge of of like coltrane releases that happened after he died mm-hmm. there's just a lot to pick through with those but yeah, I, I i totally get you though but but that i mean I remember I bought it off Discogs for like $10, including shipping. Like the copy that came was mass taped together. Like it was in really <laughs> shitty condition. But the actual album itself is crazy. And I love how I feel like Sanders brought it, took a little bit, um, you know, pulled a little bit out of um, Coltrane. Coltrane and like, you know, vice versa. And it, it's just, it's really cool to hear. Um, 
kind of the development of, of their styles. Um, and so, and then kind of to go on the, uh, the other end when I tried to find some, some newer albums to highlight from this week, uh, I picked out two albums that I think are pretty interesting and unique in their own ways. The first is an album called uh, Drolleries by Blore. Um, it's a pretty, it honestly looks like a dance punk album cover. Like mm-hmm. it's, you know, bright colors, like bright orange, pink. And I think one of the reasons I stuck out is it kind of is a parallel to what I talked about earlier, where um, the tracks all were composed in some way, but they still have that free jazz spirit. And it really, it creates a cool dynamic of having some clear, re- you know, repeating motifs and some clear, you know, kind of subtle melodies and whatnot, but you still have that, you know, great energy and that great uh, vibe. And it, it's interesting how you can kind of capture that chaos in a way, but still leave room for some improvisation. Um, mm. I think that's one of the free jazz's greatest strengths is being able to um, write something or, or at least kind of create the framework for something that kind of takes its, you know, takes its own path and, and is its own animal after a while. Mm. Um, and the second album is First Laps by it's Zach Roden, Jared Gilgore, and Ian McComb. And they are, I think they collaborate with Colin Webster, who's one of the best modern saxophonists, I think. He's really, uh, he's kind of a workhorse. He puts out a lot of diverse projects. And I think he has a hand in this label that released this album. But this is kind of what you think about when it's, uh, you know, your standard, you know, bass sax drums like you know a trio just kind of going crazy um it's some of the modern techniques like a lot of um using air um and whatnot uh i I don't know if there's a specific tech you know technique name yeah yeah just the idea of like blowing through the instrument but but without making you know uh without using it to make like a specific sound yeah exactly yeah um and like so it's sort of like clicking the keys and that type of thing yeah exactly and so i thought you weren't annoyed by that (laughs) Um, this one is subtle enough that I, I didn't mind it. I, I, yeah. I think that if you use sparingly, that's kind of an interesting technique, but, yeah. um, that's kind of why I wanted to highlight this one. Cause I felt like it kind of represented that where a lot of people are going with free jazz mm. or at least a number of modern artists, you know, I have checked out. Um, that's something, you know, Webster does a lot where he'll, he, and several of his newer albums, that's kind of been something he's done almost entirely and that's why i don't listen to them as much anymore Mm. um but yeah like it was kind of cool to to hear listen to past and present and hear how you know some some things have changed some things have have stayed the same but kind of been tweaked a little bit some things are pretty much exactly the same yeah um and it's that's cool man i so um i think unless you have anything else to say i think we're because we're we're getting a little uh over time here uh i thought we could just quickly go over uh albums of the week yeah, absolutely. Why, why yeah. don't you go first? Okay, uh, so I was listening to a lot of shit this week, I, like including the whole free jazz thing. I've been trying to get through like this massive to listen list, basically that it's just taking me forever. But um, on that, I put uh, Death's entire discography, except for the ones that I've already listened to, like Symbolic and uh, Scream Bloody Gore. Uh, so I've been listening to those for like the past couple weeks. And this week, uh, I finally turned on uh, Individual Thought Patterns. And holy fuck, do I love this album. 
Like, yeah, that's a great album. It's a great album, and like I, you know, for some reason, like symbolic just never really clicked with me. Like I, I don't, I don't think it's bad, but like it, di- it didn't have the punch that individual thought patterns did for me. So I, I, w- I would choose that as my album of the week. I, I just, I think it's a really interesting like early tech death album, and uh, I mean, I, I really. I think all of Death's albums are fucking great. Like, I, I there really wasn't a single one that was like, "This is boring." Um, I enjoyed them all a lot. Uh, I just finished their discography last night with Sound of uh, Perseverance. So, mm. but individual thought patterns, like from the first track, just completely just like got me. I mean, it was like a punch in the face, and it was a punch that I really needed. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really definitely go for that. Um, what about you, good sir? Oh, this was tough because I I, li- I kind of recapped my listening from January and, and on on Friday the first I, I posted my you know my top fifteen favorite albums from the the month and there are like three I've been juggling with which one to pick uh, but I think the one that I've listened to the longest over the past week and and just it was my top pick for Ed picks is uh, Nicola Cruz Siku. Uh, I guess using Latin electronic is kind of the most uh, the most succinct way to yeah I I, talk I about noticed it. that I was like what the hell is Latin electronic <laughs> it's it's a really lazy tag but like from there it was difficult to because basically what it is is it's kind of like that four swords type of um, kind of mysterious trip hoppy oh, like, experimental look, style. W- w- what are they? Could they call it like ambient dub? I think. Yeah. Like, yeah. But, and the thing is, is he uses a lot of just traditional instrumentation and, and samples from. He's from Ecuador, so he uses a lot of Andean folk music, um, a lot of Hindu um, styles. Like there's a lot of sitar on this, and along with you know synth and electronic patterns, and the whole thing comes together to be just really really fascinating there's some great catchy compositions and some great um you know use of 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 varying instrumentation that's just you know really really phenomenal Hmm. that's really interesting i'm really i really want to listen to that now because i i find that like like i i think like well i i don't really want to use the term but like world music which I, I really don't like that term because I think yeah, it, I it don't, just, I don't like it just that pigeonholes either. everything. It pigeonholes like, like several traditions and yeah, countries. Exactly. <laughs> and it's just like like these we're talking about like styles of folk music that have been like around since like the dawn of man. And like they're all completely unique in their own little ways. And just to like lump them all under world music is just such a bullshit thing to do. Um, yeah, that's why I felt that you know Latin electronic was at yeah. least a bit more specific, yeah, even if it's not great. All that to say though is is that I you know I've really wanted to try to explore this part of music more, and I, I think that like to take sort of like a modern version of it, I think that that like that sounds really cool. So, um, but I think that's going to be it for today. We are running very over time but um <laughs> i i think this was a fun episode and uh, absolutely yeah it's good talking and uh we will talk to you guys next week all right take care bye bye